I'm turning now to Psalm 72 and verse 1. Psalm 72, verse 1. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. And our subject is God's plan for the world. This is an astonishing psalm. Here it is written a thousand years before the coming of Christ. It is headed in our King James Version, a psalm for Solomon. In most of the modern translations, the heading is rendered a psalm of Solomon. It could be either. You could translate it either way. But uh, I think the old version is right. It is a psalm for Solomon. It's a psalm of David, the very last verse. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And to make this a psalm of Solomon, you have to assume that that last verse has been added subsequently and editorially, but that's not a wise assumption to make. No, this is, was always thought in the past to be David's last psalm. And what a climax to all the others it is. It isn't the last psalm in the book of Psalms by any means by David. There are more by him, even though the psalms of Asaph follow. But let's come into this because the great thing about this psalm is that it is one of the most magnificent and comprehensive prophecies in the Old Testament. That's what it is. Pure prophecy from beginning to end. There's no doubt that David composed it with Solomon in mind to some degree that his son and his successor would answer in many respects to the characteristics of this psalm, this statement, but it's also quite clear that David is looking far beyond Solomon to the coming of Messiah. And there are various reasons. Would you mind if I'm going to begin on a slightly technical note? But uh, I'm, I'm sure you will be interested. And then we'll go through the psalm just quickly, verse by verse. So I won't be giving headings because it just is so magnificent, we'll try to look at it as much of it as we can. First of all, it's obviously prophecy because of its exalted language. It says so many things that uh, could not be achieved or accomplished by a mere earthly ruler. It's looking way into the future, to Christ. The whole of the Old Testament does. There's nothing unusual about that. The coming of a great descendant is promised in the very first book of the Bible. A great descendant to our first parents. The promise is continued during the time of Abraham. A great descendant to Abraham whose coming will bring blessing to people in every nation of the world. Not every single person but vast numbers of people spread throughout the world. The promise continues. Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and 
the prophets. We could go to so many references in the prophets to the great coming descendant. And this is not unusual, this psalm, in that it prophesies Christ. Jesus Christ, the only person in history. Of course, he was God as well as man. He was God incarnate who came in human flesh. But Christ Jesus is the only person in history ever to have been prophesied for generations beforehand in great detail, in many different ways. And here he is in Psalm 72, a thousand years before his coming. Give the king thy judgments, O God. It's so obvious it's about the coming Messiah that the old, the ancient Jewish Targum, Jewish translation of the Old Testament into Aramaic languages, which expands things a little, something of a paraphrase, even renders it, give the King Messiah thy judgments. It was so obvious, even to the Jews of Old Testament times, that this was a messianic psalm about someone far greater than Solomon. So it begins on this note, give the king thy judgments, O God. Not only does it use exalted language, but it also has specific statements which refer to a divine king through the psalm. Uh, Then its grammar demands that it's translated as prophecy because throughout it is all the verbs or most of the verbs from verse 2 on are future tense. So it is a predictive psalm in its grammar and it should be rendered he shall. Our version does that. He shall judge thy people. He shall judge the poor. They shall fear thee. He shall have dominion. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass. It's he shall all the way through. There are just three verses, this is technical I'm afraid, where the vital verb is in the optative mood. So it could be translated, I wish, I pray. But everything else is predictive and future tense. So it's a great shame that some of the popular modern commentaries take weaken the psalm rather by saying, may he, may he, may he do this, may he do that, all the way through the psalm. They make it entirely optative mood. And the grammar isn't optative. It's future tense. And it's quite clear that it's predictive. It's prophecy. And amazing prophecy also. So let's try to go through it on that basis. Who is this coming king, uh, the one to whom the psalm looks. Well, down in verse 2. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. When you see that word judge, you can equally translate it uh, as the kind of judgment. Well, what is a judgment when the judge either condemns or when he justifies 
person is guilty or not guilty. He shall judge. It ideally is one or the other. What suits the context? He shall acquit, of course, because it's a benefit, it's a good thing which is in mind. He shall acquit. So for judge, read acquit in this verse. He, when he comes, this king, shall acquit thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. This is a strange statement. What does it mean? It's prophetic and it's wonderful. A king is coming and he will have the power to forgive sin. He will have the power to acquit the record that stands against us. When we go before God, what have we done? How have we lived? How do we stand in relation to the Ten Commandments of God and all the other commands in the Scripture? Have we lived for him? Have we lived perfect lives? No. We're sinners. We're corrupt. But there's one who has the power to acquit us and free us. He shall judge or acquit thy people with righteousness. How is this? With what righteousness? With his own righteousness. This is Christ who is God, who comes into the world, he is perfect, he is holy, he is our representative, he lives a perfect life. Oh, his righteousness can be imputed to us. He can extend his righteousness to those he forgives so that we are acquitted because we're covered by him, the perfect one. And his righteousness, he also dies for our sin and pays the price and the punishment of sin for us. But right from verse 2, he, this coming king, will acquit thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. And then verse 3, the mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. A curious statement on the face of it. The mountains that surrounded Jerusalem, well, they formed a kind of protective shield. But that isn't what is in mind. What is in mind is when relief comes to a besieged city, a city in distress. It's Jerusalem, undoubtedly, in David's picture. And on the mountains come the messengers who are coming to say that relief is near, that a force has arrived to relieve the city. So the siege can be thrown off. Good news is coming. But the mountains don't do it. It's that they are the places where the messengers come and they light beacons. And then the Advance guard of the relieving troops appear. So that's what it's all about, the illustration of good news on the mountains. And it's a picture of how Christ will come. He will come into the world and bring this message that there is pardon and forgiveness through what he will do, suffering and dying for us on Calvary. 
living a perfect life on behalf of all his people. He will do these things and come into this world and bring in a message of forgiveness and mercy and new life for all who believe in him. So the mountains and messengers coming over the mountains to give the good news of relief for the city is an illustration of the way this will come. Man won't dream it up. Men and women won't figure out how to get to God. Men and women won't devise a way of pleasing God. It will be spoken into this world, brought in. You remember how the New Testament begins with John the Baptist coming and proclaiming the need to repent and seek God? And then he points to Christ and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, one who's going to be slain for us, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Then Christ himself proclaims it. Then his trained apostles proclaim it. It's a message which is delivered from God into the world. That's what the scripture is about. It's a book of revelation. God speaking in. It's all in this verse. The mountain shall bring peace to the people. Peace. That comes from the Hebrew verb to be safe. Safety. Reconciliation with God. No more condemnation to fear. No more judgment from God if we believe in Christ. And then verse 4. This is a very special verse. What will Christ do when he comes? He shall judge. Again, read Acquit, that's the judgment. He shall acquit who? The worthy? The people who strive to deserve him? No, he shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy. It goes lower and lower. You could say the verse works from the poor, to the needy, to the children of the needy. In effect, what it's saying is the people he will save are the people who repent, who humble themselves before him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, said Christ when he came. He will not bless the people who say, I think I can earn this. I can deserve the, f the favor of God and his forgiveness and his love and blessing and help from him. He has come to deal with those who see their hopelessness and their sinfulness and their lost condition and who go on their knees and repent. That's the meaning of the verse. Who will he save? He shall acquit the poor, the children of the needy, and shall break in pieces the oppressor. That's a good translation. It comes literally from the verb to press or to pressurize. You and I, while we're away from God, are pressurized. There's constant pressure upon us. 
from atheism and unbelief. Don't you believe in that God? Don't you turn to him? Don't you seek him? Pressure to believe in this world. Pressure to believe that materialism can make you happy and give you everything you need. We're constantly under pressure. But when he works in a life, he breaks that oppression. And we see through it. And one of the first things that happens to someone who's going to be converted is they begin to realize the emptiness of this world and the shallowness of materialism and the hopelessness of living just for the here and now and shall break in pieces the oppressor and smash its control over us and its grip upon us so that we seek the Lord. Verse 5, They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. This is a king who's going to live forever. We find him on earth, then we have him forever in heaven. And look, verse 6, I shall go quickly. How will he come? There's a little more on how Christ will come. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass. Well, he did come down. He came down from heaven. And there's this world, like the meadows in the ancient east. They've been cut to provide fodder, hay for the cattle. And now they're lying there yellow and brown and parched and the ground is cracked and then come the spring rains pouring down and all of a sudden the whole landscape turns green and something new shoots up. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. That's what it's like to find him. New life and new graces are received by you. New characteristics, kindness and generosity and integrity, all kinds of things are given to you as Christ forgives you your sin and changes your life. Verse 7, in his days shall the righteous flourish It continues the illustration of verse 6 because flourish translates the Hebrew shoot up. It's that withered grass shooting up and the crops shooting up. In his days shall the righteous shoot up an abundance of peace, reconciliation with God and safety from judgment. And it lasts so long as the moon endureth throughout life. And verse 8, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. So it's the old boundaries of Israel plus plus. Now to the ends of the earth, he's going to have dominion over everything. And Christ does. 
What's this world about? What is it for? It is Christ gathering out a people for his eternal possession. Is this the plan of God? Why did God not end the world centuries ago? With all its suffering because of human sin and all its hostility and terrors, why did God just not end it? Because he determined that it would go on for just so long, we don't know how long, but in the mind of God it's a set period. He determined it would go on for that length of time while he would be gathering out a people for himself, touching the hearts of multitudes, bringing them to repentance and faith in Christ, saving their souls, making them his own, so that everlasting glory would be peopled with the saved, redeemed people. That's the plan of God for the world. And he's carrying it out. The world seems to be against God. The world seems to be in constant convulsions of evil and terror all over the place. But Christ is gathering out his people. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea unto the ends of the earth. And look at some of the features of Christ's work. Verse 9. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him. The significance of that is this. Who, who lived in the wilderness? Who lived in the desert wastes? Some nomads? Some very tough people? Very durable people? Somehow scratched a living in the desert areas? And they were tough people and resilient people. And they are very resistant to interference or encroachment by outsiders. They represent a people here. They're used as an illustration. Even the tough people, even the people most resistant to God, even the people most difficult to win and to influence, even among them, while this present Christian age lasts, there will be people converted to Christ and given new hearts. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him. The tough people will relent and seek the Lord and find him and be changed, or many of them. And his enemies shall lick the dust. That's probably meant positively here in the context. This is the story of wonderful things that God will do. What is it to lick the dust in the language of the ancient East? Well, it was when a conqueror took over his enemies and they had to prostrate themselves on the ground before him. And it was lit. some even made them lick the dust but whether they did or not, that's what it was called, licking the dust. It comes all the way from the ancient East. But the idea here is positive. His enemies will gladly go on their knees before him, 
Say, Lord, forgive me. I've been an enemy all my life. I've hated faith. I've hated Christ. I've hated the idea of repentance, a new life. And now I need to come. So among even the enemies, in the mercy of Christ, there will be repentant souls. And verse 10, the kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. That takes us from southern Spain, the kings of Tarshish, to Arabia, Sheba. Remember how the queen of Sheba went to see Solomon? And Seba in Africa, it's the Bible's way of saying throughout the world, people will come to him. Verse 11, yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Now, verse 12 immediately qualifies that. That doesn't literally mean all kings literally and all people in all nations, but it means people in all nations, including some kings, who, verse 12, he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. Whoever cries out to him from every land and nation will be saved. Whoever cries out for forgiveness and new life and trusts in Christ and how he bore away their sin on Calvary's cross will be saved. Verse 13, he shall spare the poor and needy and shall save the souls of the needy, the saving of your everlasting soul. Verse 14, he shall redeem their soul. That's a precious word. Redeem. Buy back. You know what happened in terrible days of slavery. If somebody wished to give a slave freedom, they had to buy the slave from its owner and pay and then the slave could be freed and that's the idea here he shall redeem he buys us back from our life of unbelief and sin by suffering and dying for our sin taking the punishment himself it's like buying us back from the life we've chosen to live. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence. And dear friends, that's what it is. If I'm an unbeliever, I'm being deceived. I'm being lied to. I've been told there is no God and I've believed it, but I'm being deceived. And violence, I'm forced to be an unbeliever. Also, although it's my choice, there's great pressure upon me. People around me scorn God. All the influences upon me suggest that everything came into being without him. Well, I shall be delivered from all these pressures and from these lies. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence and precious 
shall their blood be in his sight. In modern language, once you're saved, once you're forgiven, once you're given new life by God, you will never lose it. He will keep you. He will hold you. Should you wander from the track, he will surely bring you back. Because once you're saved, truly saved, you cannot be lost. Precious shall their blood be in his sight. It's a very powerful way of saying just that. Your soul is safe with him. And verse 15, he shall live, and he did live. And to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually, made to him is an equally good translation. And daily shall he be praised because he's God. And verse 16, there shall be an handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. Did you ever hear of such a thing as that? Who would plant grain on the top of a mountain? Who would try to cultivate a field for food or for gain on the top of a mountain? Impossible. Madness. But listen to the illustration. There shall be a mere handful of corn planted in the earth upon the top of the mountains. Not very promising in appearance. What's going to become of that, says the prophecy, the fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon. It'll be the biggest crop that could be imagined will come from that unlikely start. What an interesting, oblique description of the coming of Christ and of the gospel. Absolutely on target, but in this veiled language. When Christ came, he had, as the prophet Isaiah said, no form or comeliness that we should desire him. He came as a poor man. He came poorly clad. He came unaccompanied by any grand retinue. He never lived in a castle or a palace. He came in humility as a poor man. A handful of corn sown at the top of a mountain. He worked his mighty miracles. He took no gain. He trained his disciples. And then he allowed himself to be taken and arrested and subjected to gross mistrials and crucified for his people. And while he hung on the cross, God smote him from heaven in an invisible punishment, putting upon him all the guilt of everyone for whom he died, and he suffered our judgment in our place. And he died 
a poor man, discarded by society, but he rose from the dead. And his disciples, with the whole of Jewish nationalism against them, fearing for their lives, began to preach, and thousands were converted, 3,000 on the first sermon, followed by 5,000, followed by other thousands, and the gospel spread like a running deer throughout the ancient world, even coming to our shores here in a relatively short time. Everywhere, throughout the Roman roads, the gospel was spread, and hundreds of thousands and millions of people in those early centuries were converted to Christ, despite great opposition. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. The plan of God for the world, that Christ would come, suffer and die, make an atonement for sin, begin his church, people would be saved, converted to him, gathered in down the centuries until the day when he shall come again and bring everything on earth to a close. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. Blessed be the Lord God, <clears throat> the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. Do you know him, friends? Have you come to him? Have you yielded your life to him and sought his forgiving love? This is the plan of the world, the redemption of the everlasting people of God. Oh, may you be among them and be saved and be safe.